looking at the scriptures today, and there's an insert in the bulletin. We're going to be looking at Acts 6. If you want to look at that scripture together, Acts 6, 1 through 7. And this is a dialogue of uh, some issues going on in the early church. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read that for you. This is Acts 6, 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Little secret about myself, um, I love trivia. In fact, I love useless trivia. I know so many things about things that are not important. It would astound you if I started reciting them. I'm a big fan of Jeopardy. Alex Trebek, what a cool guy, huh? Love to play Jeopardy and have a good time. So I'm just curious about stuff. And so I, I was uh, actually had some money out today. I was uh, this past week. I was buying something, and I, I looked on the back of this dollar bill, and I, I, my curiosity struck me. I thought, what exactly are is all of this stuff on the back of the dollar bill? And I said, I'm going to go figure this out. I'm going to go try to figure out what's going on with this dollar bill. So you see, there are these two symbols on the back of the dollar bill. Do you know what these represent, by the way? Anybody? It's the great seal of the United States of America. The two coins of the seal is right here on the back of the dollar bill. We're probably most familiar with this one right here, the big seal. And so I started doing some research at um, the Great Oz, also known as Wikipedia. And I learned that we have this great seal that was crafted in like 1780 that is used on all of the big official documents for the United States government, about 2,000, 3,000 documents every year. And the creation of the seal was a big deal back then. In fact, before the Continental Congress convened, uh, ended in July 4th, 1776, they gave express instructions that a seal would be created that would visually represent what was going on here with the United States of America. And it was so important that they chose Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson to be the guys who would visually demonstrate and represent the, the United States in this seal. Well, it wasn't that easy to come up with something. In fact, it took three committees of 14 men over a period of six years to finally come up with the great seal of the United States of America. So we, should, we know some of this. I'm not going to get too much into this one with the pyramid and the eye at the top of the pyramid. And it says, annuit coceptit, coeptus, which in Latin basically means favors our undertakings. And so this little eye is supposed to represent the eye of providence, really the eye of God, who has favored the undertakings of forming a, a new nation, the Novus Order Secorum, which is down at the bottom, which means new world order. But we have to take it in its context. It's, it's not saying a new 
world order, rather a new American era that is occurring here. Now I want to talk about this seal, but before that I have discovered that this is not a secret Masonic symbol that leads one to a mountain of gold under Mount Trashmore. Okay, so everyone's a little disappointed, but you know, I gotta speak the truth from the pulpit. Well, we've got over here the symbol of the Great Seal. We see the bald eagle, we get that. Above it, 13 stars. And the, the 12 stars are supposed to represent, represent sort of the panoply of nations. And the 13th star is the United States taking it, its place among the world order, among the powers. But then we see this shield here, red, white, red, white, and blue. That's sort of the coat of arms of the United States. And each of those uh, lines, those stripes, represent the 13 states. And the blue bar above the top represents Congress. And essentially the 13 states coming together to be on one shield together, held together by Congress. The states lifting up Congress and Congress uniting the states. And so that's why we understand when we see this banner that says, E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. Out of many people, one nation. Out of many states, one nation being formed and coming together. And this nation having the ability, if you look on the two talons, the, the arrows represent to conduct war and to have peace. And so now you understand what is on the dollar bill. Thank you very much. Let's close in prayer. Just kidding. What does this have to do with the Bible? What it has to do is this concept of e pluribus unum is being, is, is being carried out right here in this passage that we're talking about. You see, in this passage, a crisis has erupted in this new church that has been formed, this third nation, if you will, called the church. And they're trying to figure out how do we live in the midst of conflict and difficulties when we get different people who are sinners together. And the answer is e pluribus unum. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The church answers this question with e pluribus unum in three ways. Out of many needs, one mission. Out of many people, one family. And out of many workers, one spirit. And I'm going to do my best to show this e pluribus unum. But to communicate the mission of the church is to preach the whole gospel using the whole congregation to the whole world. Well, let's see e pluribus unum in action here. If we look at this passage in, in 6.1, we see a controversy has happened. And in fact, it's an internal controversy. It's the first controversy in the church that's internal. Now, we're all familiar with external controversies. Those often drive a country to come together, a church to come together in the face of outward opposition. But when there's inward opposition, that's the thing that drives people apart, isn't it? And so they're faced with this opposition. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing, and the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there were these widows who were under the care of the church. They had been widowed, they were probably older women, they had no uh, means of support, and so they were relying on the church to take care of them. But there was a problem. The Hebraic Jews were widows were receiving more than the Grecian Jews widows. Now what's going on? Is there some discrimination going on here? I don't think so based on my reading of the church. I think it's poor administration. But there's a problem. Now what's the problem here? The problem is that you have two different groups of Jews. Right now the church is only comprised of Jewish people. There are the Hebraic Jews who are from Jerusalem and from the area. 
They never left, if you will. They never went out into the world. They always stayed. They speak Hebrew. They think in a Hebraic-type mindset. But then you have these other Jews who are Grecian Jews, and they were the ones that have left. They've gone to Rome. They've gone to Galatia. They've gone to Thessalonica, either on their own or because they were forced there. They speak Greek, not necessarily speak Hebrew. They think in a Greek way. Uh, they've been under the tutelage of, of Plato and Aristotle. So these folks are coming together under one church, and inevitably there's a clash that's occurring. What's the church going to do about it? How do the apostles respond? How would you respond? Has anyone here ever been part of a crisis in a business or an organization or a family or a church when internal grumblings begin? There's problems between people. And it starts as just a grumbling, but it starts to build and build. And all of a sudden, it's a hurricane. And all anyone can think of is this crisis and dealing with this crisis. It literally takes over the entire church. You can't do what you were supposed to do because you're dealing with it. Well, the apostles refuse to be drawn into that. They do something else. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said... It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. They acknowledge the issue, but they refuse to let it dominate what the church is going to be about. In fact, in the Greek there, not be right, that this passage would be, it would not be pleasing of God, uh, pleasing to God to leave behind the Word of God to wait on tables. They're not speaking pejoratively of the need to handle this. They're acknowledging it, but they're not letting it dominate. Well, why not? The answer is, out of many needs, one mission. That there is a mission that's been given to the church back then and to us to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A special thing that we have been entrusted with that nobody else has. You know, there are a lot of great organizations out there, aren't they? I love big brothers and big sisters and the work that they're doing with young people. I love goodwill and the things they're doing with helping people find work and meals on wheels, taking food to shut in. All those things are wonderful. But none of them is like the church because the church is the one entrusted with the message that one person can become new and can become a new creation in Christ. They can move from death to life. They can move from being an enemy of God to a son of God, to a daughter of God. They can discover what life is all about, the message that we hope for, that there's a meaning and purpose to life, that God really cares about us. And that message is manifested in seeing Jesus Christ die on the cross for our sins and rise again. This is the message that has been trusted to the church and the apostles say, we can't stop communicating that. Listen in this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. All of what's going on here is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. And he has committed to us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The church has a special mission, this, this organization that we belong to, to bring the message of hope and life, the message of Jesus, to the world. 
And so we cannot lose focus of what it is that we are about here today in Church of the Redeemer, just like they did back then. A boat docked in a tiny Mexican village. The American tourist standing nearby complimented the Mexican fisherman on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took, to, it, uh, took him to catch them. Not very long, answered the Mexican. But then why didn't you stay out longer and catch more, asked the American. The Mexican explained that his small catch was sufficient to meet his needs and those of his family. The American asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, and take a siesta with my wife. In the evenings, I go into the village to see my friends and have a few drinks, play the guitar and sing a few songs. I have a full life. The American interrupted. I'd like to give you some advice. I'm a manager with GE, and I have an MBA from Harvard, and I can help you. If you start fishing longer every day, you can sell the extra fish you catch, and with the extra revenue, you can buy a bigger boat. With the extra money the larger boat will bring, you can buy a second one, and a third one, and so on until you have an entire fleet of trawlers. Instead of selling your fish to a middleman, you can negotiate directly with the processing plants and maybe even open your own plant. You can then leave this little village, move to Mexico City, Los Angeles, or even New York City. And from there, you can direct your huge enterprise. How long would that take, asked the Mexican. 20, perhaps 25 years, replied the American. And after that, when it gets really interesting, you can, when your business gets really big, you can start selling stocks and making millions. Millions? Really? And after that, what? Inquired the fisherman. After that, you will be able to retire, live in a tiny village near the coast, sleep late, play with your children, catch a few fish, take a siesta with your wife, play your guitar, and spend your evening socializing and enjoying your friends. You see the point. What would be the point of doing all that? You can't lose focus because somebody comes along with a great message or a great catch. There's so many great things to distract us. There's even a lot of hard things to distract us. But we have been entrusted with the mission to communicate Jesus Christ to the world, and we can't get distracted from that. E pluribus unum, out of many needs, one mission. So we must stay focused. Well, how do we do that? The answer is simple. Become captivated by Jesus yourself. Before this passage of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For Christ's love compels us. For we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. You see, the first thing we have to do before we go out into the world is to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. To look at the cross. To pray to Christ. To ask the question, do you really love me, God? Is it really true that I'm your son and I'm your daughter and you look out for me and you care for me and you have a plan for my life? And Christ answers again and again through His Scriptures and His Holy Spirit, yes, it's true. And what we'll discover is when we turn our eyes to Jesus and we look full in His wonderful face, that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, to the degree that we want the message of Jesus to go forth into the world is to the degree that our own hearts have been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where is your heart today? Has it grown cold in the things of God? Is it cold to the things of the world 
and to people, and you find that you're not caring about them. Maybe we need to go back to Christ and to preach the gospel to ourselves and to become captivating first. And then our attitude will change. Then you'll start shouting at me, Pastor, get out there. Let's get out there. Let's talk to people. Let's find ways to engage the world. Show me how. I don't know how to talk to people about Christ, but I want to. You see, a healthy church takes the whole gospel to the whole world using the whole congregation. Well, this brings me to my second E pluribus unum. Out of many people, one family. This second point is equally important. Because the way we preach the gospel, the whole gospel to the whole world is not just by preaching the gospel, it's by living the gospel. You see, there's this internal tension that's going on in the church right now. There's these problems that have to be addressed. Well, so what? I mean, we've got to get the message out, don't we? For, that problem will take care of itself. Let's, let's go, let's go, let's go. No, wait a second. The gospel isn't just something the church preaches. It's something that the church lives. See, if this message of the gospel of Christ is so transformative in our lives, would it not transform the community of the people that were gathered in it as well? And so we understand that the gospel must transform our church, that our lives must preach the gospel as much as our voices must preach the gospel. And one of those critical elements is unity. God calls for a unified church. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus prayed for you in the scriptures. He says he prays for all believers when he's praying to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, the apostles, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one, I and them, and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. You see, they refuse to stop preaching, and they refuse not to deal with the problem, because they understand that the way we live is as important as the gospel we preach. Now, what if they hadn't dealt with the issue? What if they just let it ride? And it kept on building and building. You know what would happen? A contradiction would start to occur between the message that was being preached and the message that was being lived. See, the world was watching the church. And the truth of the matter is the world watches us too, doesn't it? And one of the biggest verdicts against the church is what? Hypocrisy. You say one thing, and yet you live in a different way. We have our own responsibility to live the gospel in the church. And the truth of the matter is, when we become Christians, we do become our brother's keeper. There's a beautiful picture of, uh, that I heard about uh, geese. I'm actually very versed in trivia on waterfowl as well. But geese, when they go flying, we've seen them up in the sky, and they, they do this V pattern. You see that? Well, what's going on there is with every successive beat of the bird in front is creating an updraft, which helps lift the next bird, which helps lift the next bird, and so on and so on and so on. In fact, the efficiency of the flying wing of geese can make it 70% easier for the geese to actually fly because of the support they're giving one another. And if you watch them, they'll constantly be rotating 
as the geese in the back is coming around and is taking the point and taking all of the work so that the next people can rest a little bit, and so on, and so on, and so on. But something's very interesting about geese. If one geese gets tired or sick and falls out of the formation, you will see another geese that will fall out, or two that will fall out as well. And they will come down to earth, and they will stay with that, that goose until that goose recovers or dies. And then they will fly off to rejoin the team. See, they're committed to one another. They understand that they can get where they're going if they all come together. You know, it was Benjamin Franklin that said, look, we either are going to all hang together or we're all going to hang apart. We're in this thing together. And so the church is called to be one. And so we are as well. We must take the way we treat one another as seriously as the gospel that we preach. E pluribus unum, out of many people, one family. Philippians 2.3 puts it this way, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Well, how do we do this, church? How do we put this into practice? Here's step one, recognize that you can't. We can't do this on our own. I have a confession to make to you. I'm selfish. It's true. Ask my wife. She'll back it up. Ask my children. It's true. I'm selfish. I like me. Heck, I even love me. And I want to take care of Carlos. And the truth of the matter is, when I'm tired, I don't want to take care of anybody else. They're crying. They're whining. They're complaining. They're wrong. No. But wait a second. Aren't we all that way? Aren't we all that way and called to come together? We need a supernatural life to be a supernatural community. Praise God, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and enables us to live beyond ourselves. But that only happens when we recognize that we can. You know, the number one value of a Redeemer, we list our values in there, is humility. Understanding that we don't have all the answers, but Christ does. Point number two of how we do this, commit to the fellowship here. Become a member. Make a decision. I'm going to be part of the family. You may have been coming for a while and sort of checking it out, but you're on, on the fringe and you fall into prey to the American disease, which I call not committed to anything-itis. Not committed to anything-itis. I, I want to be on the fringe. I don't want to have to tie myself to anyone's life or, or be tied to theirs. But you see, we miss out on the benefits of giving our life away to other people and receiving their life as well. We want people at Redeemer to say, I'm in. I'm part of this. We may be small, but guess what? We're in. We want being a member here at Redeemer to mean something. And so we've just recently reconfigured our membership covenant a little bit to explain better what that means. If you're a member here at Church of the Redeemer, we want to spend some time with you talking about what it means uh, to be a, a member of Redeemer. So I, I'd appreciate if you'd sometime pull out that little white sheet that's in your bulletin and just write uh, member so we can get our records straight and we can send you this and so we can talk more about what it means to be a member. But become a member. If you're not a member yet, December 3rd and 4th is our membership weekend where you have a chance to hear more about Redeemer, where we're going and make a decision that says, I'm in. I'm, I'm part of this body. And then finally, the third step of how we do this Care. Care for people around you. Become interested in the people to your right and your left. Reach out to someone. 
Pick up the phone, learn their name, take them to lunch, meet them, teach them your life. If you know someone's hurting, go ahead and take that step, that initiative. Bring them dinner, let them know that you're praying for them. Reach into their life, it doesn't have to be so formal, it's informal, it's one person caring for another, sharing your need with people. And the final point is to give. Give to this church. Help this church to become stronger financially so we can set aside some of these monies for some of those particular instances that need that financial help. Us all bonding one to another. E pluribus unum, out of many people, one family. And as we preach the gospel and live the gospel, we will become effective at spreading the gospel. This brings me to my final e pluribus unum, out of many workers, one spirit. So they see there's a problem, they can't be diverted from preaching the gospel, but there's a need here, so how do they deal with it? The answer is they delegate. They find new leadership and new people to help fill these needs. Look at verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And then they choose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicero, and all of these guys here. And they take over. Okay, this shows us something very important. The church is not a one-man show. It's not the professionals, the paid guys who went to school, and they do all that, and it's us. And we sit in the pew, and we do our thing, and we write our check, and then we go home, and that's it. We're not seeing that at all in the New Testament. We're seeing delegation of leadership and responsibility based on people and their particular gifts. In this case, a particular type of person was needed. One that had wisdom and had a reputation among the people for having wisdom because this was a really dicey situation that needed to be handled. But they were also full of the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't just reside in the pastor. It resides in each one of you. And the truth of the matter is that you have special manifestations of the Spirit that are needed for this church to function. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 7, which says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. See, we call these spiritual gifts. It's not a talent or skill that you've had from birth, though it may coincide with that. But it's a special spiritual gift, a manifestation of the Spirit that you have, that God has given you to build up this body called the church. You are the guardian of it. You are the caretaker of it. But it's not for you. It's for all. Everyone has at least one. Some get more. Some only get one. But everyone gets one. Why do they get them? Because of reasons exactly like the one we read right here. There needed to be men who came along to help in this particular situation to take care of this. And there needs to be men and women in all sorts of situations helping the body to grow. Otherwise, the whole thing begins to shut down and the preaching of the gospel externally is stopped. You have something to give and something is missing in the church until you, until you provide it. How do you know what your spiritual gift is? Let me give you four, four hints. Number one, you'll be drawn to it. You'll be drawn to using this in a particular environment. Number two, you'll show interest when this particular topic or subject or need comes up. Number three, you'll experience success in the exercise 
of your spiritual gift. Finally, number four, other people will see it. They'll see it and go, ah, I see that in you. I understand that in you. The apostles saw it critical to get people, the correct people, who had the correct gift. But they also looked for people who were passionate about this issue. If you look at the names of all the people that were chosen, you'll discover something. They were all Greek names. See, these were the people that had the problem, the Greek folks. And these people were passionate about it, so they came forward. So the natural thing to do was to place it with the people that had sort of a horse in the game. They had skin in the game. They cared. And what I want Redeemer to be is a place where you're able to use your gifts in the right place for the right reason at the right time. Because that will energize the church and it will build it up as well. What would have happened? Uh, actually, Kevin, if you could come up and grab your guitar here, I'm going to give you an illustration. What would have happened if those guys would not have stepped up? If these seven guys, if there had been no one to hand off this important responsibility, what would have happened? I'm going to give you a slight illustration of that. Kevin, you can start playing uh, just a song here. Now, we all know a song, don't we? It's a combination of notes in a melodic sort of way that communicates a message. Play anything you want. Anything. I really love this song. He has no idea what I'm doing, by the way. I'm just going to leave him hanging. Okay, as you continue to play, you can no longer play the note D. And you can't transpose. Just keep playing. No D, though. You can play A, you can play E, you can play G, you can play F. Okay, I don't want you to play E either while you're playing. <laughs> you're, you're doing great. Now, I don't want you to use your ring finger when you play anything. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Here you go. Let's give him a hand. It doesn't work, does it? You need all the notes to be able to play the song. And so we need all the notes to be able to play the song. See, right now we're about a four-band band, and we need to become an eight-band band, and eventually we need to become a symphony. And that requires all of us using the gifts that God has given us, and then reaching out and finding those other people to bring them in. How do we go ahead and do this? Well, first of all, it starts out with you discovering your gifts. Do you know them? According to a recent study by George Barna, 69% of people understand that, uh, excuse me, that there are spiritual gifts, but don't know what they are. The vast majority. And so that's why we're doing this first ever spiritual gifts seminar. Next week, Friday and Saturday, for you to get a chance to discover what is the specific note I play in this melody called the church. There's a chance to sign up today. Is it going to take time out of your schedule? Yes. Is it going to cost money? Yes, it's $10 for the book and tests. It includes uh, dinner. This is all at my house, which is two miles down the road. You can get the address uh, off the website. But it is going to take a commitment of time. But you're going to come away feeling so much more excited about what's my special part to play in the kingdom of God. The way you sign up is to take that purple sheet, and as the offering plate comes around afterwards, you drop it in and say, yes, I'm in. In fact, if you're in, we have the books over there. I want you to go get one, either pay your $10 or say I owe you. If money's a problem, money is not a problem. 
I don't want because of money for you to not be a participant of that. And there are instructions in that book where you will actually take a spiritual gifts test this week in the book and you will come and you'll bring it this Friday and Saturday and we'll talk more about uh, your spiritual gifts. And Chuck is going to be helping. Chuck is Chuck's spiritual gift is dealing with this particular issue right now, finding, helping you find your spiritual gifts. And so he's going to be functioning as a coach in our group, helping you to find that best place for you to come. And so I want to encourage you to make a decision to get off the sidelines and to get into the game. E pluribus out of many workers, one spirit working in all of us to take the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole congregation. And so I conclude with this thought. A church here encountered a crisis. How did they deal with it? E pluribus How do we deal with it? The same way. Many needs, one mission. Many people, one family. Many workers, one spirit. The result, more disciples were added and the church grew rapidly. May it be the same for us today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this gospel. The gospel is a person, your son Jesus, who is given to all who would believe in him. Lord, that if we believe in you, we might become children of God that your spirit, the spirit of Christ, would come into our lives, make us new creations, make us start to live different. And you give each one of us who are believers a spirit uh, of gifts, spiritual gifts, Lord, used for building up the body, that in fact all the people who are believers with an earshot are, are a spiritual brick used to build this house called your church. Stir our hearts, Lord, give us a desire to use what you've given us to build up your kingdom to preach your gospel, Lord, that you would go forward, that you would be glorified, and the body would grow. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to this.